And as they are going, I'll just give you, uh, we'll start with the uh, little bit of review for those of you who haven't been around for a while or don't realize because we've had a couple of breaks in here. We're in week three of a series called Views from the J Train. And uh, if you haven't been around, you've got no idea what that means. Uh, what we started to do was to try and tell the story, the big picture, the story arc uh, of, the, of the whole Bible. So the, the way that we were doing it is to look at characters whose names start with J. Just because when I was uh, in, uh, a youth pastor, I used to find that people... Uh, they, they didn't know that there was a big story arc. And people like me get up at the front and we tell a, a story from here or we mention a scripture from here and a this and a that. And, and people sometimes lose track of the big picture story. And so we've been trying to tell the big story of the Bible, looking at characters whose names start with J because there's a lot of them. So um, we are in the uh, re rewind, uh, re remember, uh, refresh story of that. We started by telling you the story of Joseph. You can remember back there in week one, big story about Joseph, and we focused on the idea of this relationship between God and Joseph that uh, spanned all of the other circumstances of his story, and God took the bad and he transformed it into good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And um, we, we continued on the next week. We, we looked at Joshua, and we, we heard to, we were supposed to be strong and courageous. Repeatedly we heard that. Fear not, I am with you. And that message resonates with what Jesus would teach later on. And at the end, Joshua would say, excuse me, choose who you will serve today. But for, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We jumped on to Job, and we looked at the, the, the wisdom that was in there, that God is sovereign over all. And we don't really like that idea because we kind of like to be sovereign. We kind of like things to get our approval as they go but God's trust in Job They are powerful in cultural ways. John calls them a generation of vipers. All right? G John baptized Jesus. He was cast into prison by Herod and beheaded, but I'm definitely getting ahead of myself, getting a little excited. I've got to just slow it down a little bit, back this up a little bit. Every headliner needs an opening act. Someone who gets the crowds maybe a little warmed up and maybe builds a little bit of anticipation, a little bit of excitement for what is to come. And in the first century, Jesus had a warm-up act. Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. From the Jordan River Basin draped in animal skins and locust breath, please give a warm welcome and put your hands together for John the Baptist. Yeah. Yeah, and that's how the crowd started getting going, right? So John the Baptist steps on the scene, out onto the pages of history. Here I am. I'm ready to go. He's the opening act for Jesus. And the reason that he's called John the Baptist, it's not his stage name. He's not called John the Baptist because he's not John the Presbyterian. As far as we can tell, John is the first one in history to sort of manhandle another person and baptize them. John the Baptist comes to the Jordan River, and he is actually physically baptizing other people. And so that's how he got his nickname, John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Now, four gospel accounts all walk us through the life of Jesus. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That one feels a little better, doesn't it? Put it in the right order. Thank you very much. Luke, Luke was writing 
history. And you know I love my history. Here's his introduction to Jesus' opening act. John the Baptist, Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So we got the emperor of Rome, right? This is the guy who came right after Caesar Augustus. When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Aturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Verse 2, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. And so right there, you go, if you were ever in a church kind of small group or a Sunday school class or something, and they said, let's read the Bible together, that's a passage that you dreaded, right? All the names. I can't say any of those names. I don't know what any of those words just mean. Why is that even in the Bible? So when we hear that now, we kind of get to that place and because of our fear, I think, of saying names wrong and not knowing what they mean, we get to one of these parts and we have the habit now of saying yada, 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 right? Whatever. We'll just get to the end of the words I can't say. Just take me to the important parts. But this is extraordinary. And let me tell you why. It's not just history nerdy fun, although, you know, there's a little bit of that in there. This is Luke saying to the ancient skeptics, go ahead, all right? Fact check me. This is an orderly, researched account. It doesn't begin with, in a galaxy far, far away, or there is no once upon a time. Luke is standing there, and he's saying, what I'm about to tell you happened in history. You, you want to know when? Let me tell you when. And so what he does is meticulous, and it's so remarkable. It's so uncharacteristic of most ancient writing, but regular uh, now writing as well. When we get to Luke, there's just so much detail. He's a historian's dream. So let's start at the macro level, he says. Let's zoom out our Google Earth, and we start with the emperor of Rome. Then we go to the governors of Judah and Galilee, and then the, the, the sub-governors of the province, and then there's the high priests of the temple in Jerusalem, and, and he say, are you zooming in with me? Have you heard of any of these guys? Does, does everyone know what period of time I'm talking about? It's in this range right here. And the first century audience is clear. Yes, Luke, we're with you. We get it. We know what you're talking about. And even when people don't believe in Jesus, what they say about this stuff is that it is historically amazing. It comes across. And so Luke goes on. The Word of God came to John. That's John the Baptist, not John who wrote the book of John. Son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Story continues. We flip over to Matthew chapter 3, verse 5. People went out to him from Jerusalem, which is a city, Judea, which is a region, and the whole region of the Jordan. This wasn't like a dozen people, okay? Remember, Luke interviewed and researched this. Beaucoup de personnes came from the capital city and from the surrounding region as well. So thousands of people are going out into the middle of nowhere, and it's difficult um, to get there, especially if you start at Jerusalem. If you're coming from Jerusalem, you would have to get up before sunrise, and you'd walk, and you'd get there after sunset, and then you would hope that the next day that you could find this guy. This is not a convenient trip. There are no food trucks set up when you get there. It's on the banks of the Jordan River that John the Baptist begins to preach and teach to thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And this, this right here was a problem. 
It's a problem because every once in a while in Judea in the south or Galilee in the north, someone would rise up and they would appear like some kind of wannabe Messiah. And the Jewish leaders would have to calm everybody back down before there was an insurrection. And Rome, well, then Rome would have to get involved. Then it got bloody. The Roman governors would uh, sit down with the Jewish temple leaders and say, look, can you keep these people under control maybe? Because if you can't keep them under control, then we're going to have to keep them under control. You know what I'm saying? And you won't like the way that we put things back under control. So thanks to King Herod, things have been fairly smooth there for quite some time. And then his son also kept the family business going. Things had gone along fairly well. And suddenly now, on the banks of the Jordan River, there's this new guy, and he is saying all kinds of things. He's preaching all kinds of things, and thousands and thousands and thousands of people show up to listen to him. But it wasn't just the sermons that disturbed the temple leaders. They showed up, verse 6, they showed up confessing their sins. You just stop right there for a second, okay? This was unheard of. When we hear this way off in the future, right, in the 21st century, you go, yeah, whatever, no big deal. That's what you do, right? It doesn't stand out to us at all. But Jewish people in the first century, and for all the centuries that came before the first century, they already had a system. They had a very sophisticated system for how you confessed your sins. There was a way that you did this, right? There was an order of things. And if you lived in the vicinity of, uh, you went to the temple in Jerusalem, you bought a sacrifice. You brought a sacrifice. And there were certain sacrifices for certain things. You sacrifice different things for different sins. And then you say different things to the priests. And if you didn't live close enough to Jerusalem, you went to your local synagogue. But you found somebody in charge, okay? You found somebody official. You found somebody who's certified by the system. Someone in the temple system, someone with their authority, and you confess your sin, and they decided what you would have to do to be forgiven. And they told you what hoops that you'd have to jump through, just like many religious systems today. So now we got this uncertified, non-official nobody out in the middle of nowhere, and people are confessing their sins to Him. He's like a walking, talking temple. Just who is this guy? But it wasn't just confessing the sins, okay? It was this thing that gave him his nickname that was most disturbing of all. The verse continues, not only were they confessing their sins, but they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. If you're going to get baptized in the context of first century baptism, you need to have permission, right? You can't just show up and be baptized. How do we know if you're okay? How do, you, how do we know if you've passed through the right hoops? How do we even know what it meant? But more than that, these are Jewish people, okay? Jewish people don't need to be baptized. In that time, you got baptized as a part of a process to become Jewish. They're already part of the covenant of Abraham. So this scene that John is in is so disruptive. None of this had been approved by the high priest. There's no authority. 
There's no education. There's no backing. There's no explanation. There's no certification. There is no permission. There is no precedent. Just a wild-eyed, crazy-haired preacher in the middle of nowhere. And the whole country sighed, flocked to hear him. Here's what happened. There's a big disturbance. All this stuff is going on over at the Jordan River. Nobody's shopping at the temple anymore. People are shopping at the new mall out on the Jordan River. And so the people at the temple are thinking, hey, sales are down. What's going on? So the temple leaders are nervous. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. So the high priests and the uppity ups, they call the underlings and they send them out, the interns, send the interns out on a fact-finding field trip. It's a long way to the Jordan River. We want you to go there, not, not us. We don't want to go there, right? So you go and you find out what's going on. Get a report, get an appointment, get an interview. Find out who this guy is and what is going on. We don't want to go because it's a long way. And if we show up, we're kind of a big deal, all right? We don't want him to ride on our fame. So John chapter 1, verse 20. He did not confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. So John knows what they're going to ask, right? They want to know, who are you? And by whose authority are you doing all this stuff that you're doing? Are you another kind of wannabe, pretend Messiah? Those happen every once in a while throughout Jewish history. And the temple, they have to regulate that. So you need to come up to Jerusalem, and we need to sort this out. We need to go. you got to go through us. Verse 21, they asked him, then are you Elijah? They asked him that because in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Jewish Scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, in, in, in the book of Malachi, he's the prophet. He was the last prophet. When Malachi finished, he turned off the lights and he shut the door and he left. And God didn't say anything for 400 years. At, at least we have no evidence. We have no documentation. But in Malachi, the prophet says that before God does that, the next big thing, before Messiah, there will come a prophet that comes in the spirit of Elijah. So, if you are not the Messiah, and you say you're not the Messiah, are you the guy that comes before the Messiah? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? Now, Moses in the Qumran community had taught that there would be some great prophet that would prepare the people before God, before God did that next big something great. He answered, no. Verse 22, finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take, a, to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Come on, John. Help a brother out. I got a job. You got a job. Well, I guess you don't really have a job. We can't go back to our bosses and tell our bosses this is who he is not. We need to know who you are. We need to know who is giving authority for this. Where did you get these unsettling, unconventional ideas? Come on, John. You, 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 you can't let people confess their sin down here at the river, okay? We confess, confess sin up on the hill, up at the temple. You're down here working like you're some sort of portable temple. What's going on here? Who are you? Verse 23, John replied, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice. I'm just the voice. I'm not the guy. I'm not the one. I'm just a voice of one 
calling in the wilderness. And that's why I'm not in the temple. Make way, make straight the way for the Lord. Get ready. Get ready. God is about to do His next thing. I'm just the warm-up act. I'm, I'm just to gather the people and to let them know to get ready. And those who have pure hearts will recognize what He's up to. Those who are ready, those who have repented of their sin, and those who have opened their minds and opened their hearts that God is about to do something, those are the people who recognize God's next move. And that's, that's why I'm here. And yes, I'm allowing people to confess their sins. Heads up, something greater than the temple is about to arrive. John chapter 1, verse 24. Now the Pharisees who had sent them, uh, 25, questioned him, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Verse 26. I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one that you do not know, one that you do not recognize. Look around. Look what's going on here, okay? If you think that this is a big deal, if you think that I'm a big deal, then just wait. You have no idea who's coming. Verse 27, he is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. I'm a nobody. This crowd, the ones that you see all around you, they might think, they might make you think that I'm a somebody, but I'm not. Compared to who is coming, I am a nobody. I'm not even worthy to bend down and untie his sandals. These guys go, that's not much of an answer, right? So these guys head back up to Jerusalem. Hey, we know who he's not, so that's great. Not sure who he is. So the high priest and his guys are like, oh, <sighs> okay, fine. I guess we're going to have to go down there ourselves. This is a really bad decision on their part. So they, they get up way early in the morning. And no doubt they roll out in these stretched SUVs, right, with the heavily tinted windows, whole convoy going down the road. It's got to be a well-stocked caravan heading down that road. Lots of food, tents, minions. You can't go anywhere without your minions. They've got gear and they've got robes, probably so many robes. These are the guys the big guys, right? The, 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 the people have so much respect for these people. I mean, the high priest? Come on. This is the guy who can go into the holy of holies, the only one in the entire country. These are the guys that all the kids have trading cards for. When these people arrive, all the people just kind of back away and give space. These are the people that accept your grain offering or your goat offering. They direct you through the whole religious system. Without them, what would you do? These are the ones that you point out to your kids when you go to that temple visit. There's so-and-so. Did you see them? These are the perfect people. They look good. They smell good. They dress well. All their clothes come from holiness are us. They keep the law, right? If God is going to do something in this world, then these are the guys. These are the first people that are going to be notified so they show up, they roll in, they arrive, and they do not fade into the background. Everybody knows what's happening. And so John's out there doing his thing, right? He's teaching, he's baptizing, he looks up on the hill. 
And here they come, and they're kind of snaking down the hill paths towards the Jordan. The people are stirring. Uh, they're, they're talking. They're murmuring. They've never even seen these folks outside of the city of Jerusalem. And here they are to see John, the same guy that we came to see. And so the ticket prices that they had, the tickets just went up in value, right? They came to John. John didn't go to them. What a big day. And the crowd parts. They make their way towards John. Just imagine. There's John, crazy John, with his disheveled hair, tricked out in his animal skin clothes, smells like he's lived outside his whole life. And here comes now the most sophisticated, buttoned-up, oil-haired group of people in the entire country. And as they get closer, close enough to have a private conversation, here's what happened. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, out loud, right? In front of everyone, he says, you brood of vipers! For those of you unsure about ancient traditions and first century Middle Eastern culture, this is not a compliment, okay? That just hushed the crowd. They go, oh, that was unexpected, right? Nobody talked to these guys like that. These are the holiest people in the country. These people are basically paid to be good. That's their full-time job. He's not done there. He says, who warned you? And everybody already gathered at the Jordan River is coming to repent of their sins and to be baptized. They knew what they were coming for. And all of a sudden, it looks like these guys are all coming to be baptized, to repent of their sins. But John knew better. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Something is coming. You think I'm a big deal? No way. What is still to come is going to blow your mind. Verse 8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. This is also a dig, right? This is not a compliment. And the murmur ripples through the crowd again. John the Baptist just told the holiest men in the whole country, repent of your sin. Don't tell me about some magic prayer that you prayed in the privacy of your own home one day. I want to see fruit. I want to see the evidence. These were the law keepers, and John is telling everybody that they are the law breakers. I know what's in you. So here's the tension and the friction. This is all part of the story of Jesus of Nazareth. Throughout his public ministry, John the Baptist given everybody a heads up. He's given me a heads up. He's given you a heads up. The days of compassionless, loophole religion were coming to an end. That's a very short conversation. And they turned around and they left. And then it happened. The moment the nation had been waiting for, John 1, verse 28. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. No caravan, no entourage. He saw Jesus coming towards him. So let's just pause in this moment. In this moment, there is Jesus who knows who Jesus is, and there is John who knows 
who Jesus is. This is the hinge. This is the transition. This is an encounter that will ultimately change the world. This is the moment when Jesus of Nazareth stepped into history as an adult. God in a body. And in this moment, things begin to change, and they would never, ever go back to what they once were. We are here today out there as well. There are people all over the world today who gather in His name, and this is the moment that it began. Jesus, just think about how fragile this moment is. Just two men. In a world where people's lives can be snuffed out without any accountability, the whole thing hangs in the balance with just these two insignificant men. And all eyes are on John the Baptist. They've been on him for a while, and he says, look, look, not believe, not imagine, not consider, not pretend, not think about this, not read this, not check your brain at the door. John the Baptist invites his audience, all eyes on him, but I think that he also invites you. He invites me, all that crowd, look, the Lamb of God. And for those who had grown up Jewish, Saturday school, every week at Saturday school, they knew the story. They remembered that story that they were taught as children when Abraham is about to sacrifice his own son and God provided a lamb. And John says, look, the Lamb of God, the Lamb that, God, that comes from God, the Lamb that God provided. Look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away, who lifts up and carries off. These people understood the point of providing the Lamb, the Lamb that lifts up and carries off the sin, your sin and my sin. And they'd say, hold on just a second there, John. This is moving just a really a little bit too fast. Whew, you're baptizing? That's weird. Nobody does that. We're confessing our sins out here in the mil a million miles from Jerusalem, and that's weird. No temple. And now you're saying that God has provided a lamb, and He didn't provide the lamb at the altar in the temple where everything is supposed to happen. That's the way it's always gone down. He's provided a lamb way out here in the middle of nowhere to a bunch, to a bunch of nobodies. This is this is changing. This is too fast. It's all too new. But that was nothing compared to what came next. If all of their categories hadn't been blown yet, this was the tipping point. This is the pardon me moment. The Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. You go, hold it, hold, oh, hold it, John, John. Hold it, hold it. What? God's going to forgive all the sin of the world? I mean, like even non-Jewish sin? Like, like the sin of our enemies? Roman sin? John why, John, why would he do that? John, you're Jewish, right? Our whole religious system is designed to keep us separated from the world. We don't eat their food. We don't wear their clothes. We don't marry their daughters, and their sons don't get to marry our daughters. We don't even go into their homes. They don't come into our homes. At the temple, there's only a little itty-bitty space 
that they're allowed to go into. The rest of it is designated, designed just for Jewish people. Our whole history is marked by a struggle against the other nations. Our whole history is marked by struggle against foreign gods. That was part of Joshua's mission and the warning to the people when he was uh, leading them into the promised land. Anytime there are foreigners in our land, we just assume we are under the judgment of God. And if God were for us, He would throw them out of our land. We're waiting for a Messiah, one like Joshua, who's going to come and expel the enemy. Our whole frame of reference is us and them. God is for us. He's not for them. And now you're telling us that God has provided a lamb to take away the sin of the whole world? That instead of being against someone, we are supposed to now believe that God is for them? This was no little tension to unleash on these people. This is the tension that created so much conflict. And as we're going to see, this is the tension that creates, continues to create conflict for some of us. Jesus was the bridge between the old and the new covenants. Jesus was the bridge between two value systems. Jesus was the bridge between two different sets of laws and commandments. Jesus was the bridge between two different worldviews and that God long before Moses had promised Abraham that he would become a family, that would become a great nation. And through that nation, the entire world would be blessed. But somehow through the centuries, the, the nation of Israel, they, they somehow lost track of the fact that they were not the end. They were simply a temporary means to a glorious world-wide end. That they were God's chosen people, absolutely, but they were God's chosen people as if they were a cocoon. And from that cocoon, there would be birth and life, and life for the whole world. And John the Baptist's point was to prepare people and to help them think back to remember, we are a means to an end. And the good news is that the end has come, that God is finally going to do that thing that we've been praying for for our entire lives, that thing that we've been looking forward to our whole lives. Jesus was the bridge between the old and the new covenants. He was born under one to introduce the other. He was born under one covenant to introduce and then to fulfill and thereby to replace the one. The first covenant was a covenant between God and a nation. It was instituted on Mount Sinai, the Sinai Covenant. God brought Moses up and gave Moses all the commandments. And the people were too scared to deal directly with God, and so God accommodated them by dealing through Moses. And God gave Moses the 600-plus commands and said, this is how you are to operate. This will be your civil law. This is how the nation is to operate as I prepare them for what I will ultimately do in the world. Because I will ultimately establish a new covenant. Not with the nation, but with all the world. But you know this from your personal experience. Transitions are hard, aren't they? Transitions are stressful. The old ways die hard, and that just throws a hint forward to another J character. 
Judas. Sheeple, called to follow Jesus. We are his followers. We are the sheep. He is the shepherd. We follow the shepherd. Kind Father, thank you for the way that you have worked throughout history in people and through people that you partner with. You don't force onto people. You allow them to be part of your plan, part of your mission. Thanks for continuing in that tradition, that you will work in us and that you would work through us. Holy Spirit, we welcome you again to work in our lives, not just today, but, but tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Continue to work in us. Work out your mission through us, we pray. Transform us as we are part of it, but use us to transform those around us as well, that they might see the glory of the knowledge of Jesus Christ lived out, come to life in us, not because we preached hard at them, not because we told them that they were sinful, but because they could see the love of God in us and through us, never compromising, but always being winsome, creating the desire to hear and to listen, to be part of. Would you use us in this, this way, in, in, in our friends' lives, in our families' lives, and the people that we work with, the people we go to school with, the people we meet on the road, the people we meet in the grocery store, wherever we are, use us, please, that we might continue to delight and display the love of God to those around us. It's our desire that hope would be found and if we can be part of that, we want to put our hands up and say, me too. Put, put, put me in, coach. Let, let me be part of what you're doing. Give my life value and meaning by applying, by applying the skills, the talents, the gifts that you have given to me into this larger mission. We have been gifted and called, not just for ourselves, but for the growth and building up of the church. And then the mission of the church is to reach beyond whatever walls we construct. Continue to move us in the way that we committed a couple of years ago to be part of a process to allow you to break down barriers and to open doors. We, we, we saw you uh, work in us and through us as we tried to do that in our building physically as we tried to modify and do renovations that would break down barriers and open doors, make it easier for people to be able to come here, to be here, to be part of what's going on, whether that was the doors, the elevator, and whether it's now cameras that, that increase the, uh, the reach that we have. We want to continue to break down the barriers, those ones that are physical sometimes, but the ones that are emotional as well, that people feel like they can't come close. They feel like God is mad at them. God, help us to break down those barriers with other people not with our great arguments and clever banter, but because of our compassion and our love, our gentleness and our kindness. Infect us with kindness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.